this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Episode 12, our review of the ICER draft evidence report on resmedarome and abutacolic acid. And from the vault, we have conversation 16.1 from Season 3, in which Chris Estes, who was then the lead modeler for the CDA Foundation, joined Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, guest Alina Allen, and me to discuss some of the challenges in building a model for a disease with a long progression path and measurable levels of spontaneous regression. It's an issue that arose during the ICER discussion, but with a very different spin, so you'll probably want to listen to all of this to get a feel for how it hangs together. This vault conversation comes from an episode roughly one year ago on the prospective value of modeling in future medical care, that in future medical and healthcare policy decisions. Chris Estes, then the lead modeler for the CDA Foundation, explains how he drives models, which variables he selects as proxy measures, why he chooses those, and where shortcomings exist in the data that's available for him to use in populating the model. For much of the rest of this conversation, the other panelists, Alina Allen, Louise Campbell, Jorn Schottenberg, and me, either ask questions about how Chris's models work or what we can learn from them, and Chris answers. Beyond that, panelists share their own observations based on research and patient treatment experience, and Chris responds. The group covers a virtual shopping list of topics, many of which we touch on in this week's episode on the ICER report. In the end, this conversation offers a better understanding of how complex modeling is, how hard it is to do right, and how remarkable it is that people like Chris can produce results that bear up so well over time. While ICER is a private organization, its recommendations carry weight with those assessing the value and pricing of new medications. This report will leave a significant footprint in commercial space, so just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Let's dive into today's episode. This actually came from the last time Chris was on. As I listened to what Chris was talking about, it struck me that this podcast is never really focused on all the benefits that we can get out of learning from data modeling and epidemiologies and the ways that Chris does it. And since one primary focus of the podcast is drug development and another is better care of patients, all those issues seem to roll together. So what I'd like to ask Chris to do is just take maybe three, four, five minutes, sketch out a couple of thoughts you have. I know you had talked before, one thought having to do with drug development and another one how to do patient treatment that go in somewhat different directions. Floor is yours. Chris Estes. Oh, thank you, Roger. Just some background is we've built mathematical models for about 15 countries to look at the burden of NAFLD and NASH. The model starts in 1950 and it goes all the way through 2050. And we can actually project what the population of NAFLD is and NASH and advanced stage disease. And an important part of this is that we look at uncertainty around all these modeling outputs. And that's kind of the name of the game with NAFLD is that when we look at disease progression of NAFLD and NASH, it's often based on liver biopsy studies. And we know that patients can progress and they can regress. So they could go from F1 to F2, or they could go from F1 back to F0. And there's a huge array of uncertainty around these progression rates. And that's kind of our biggest challenge in modeling is understanding what portion of the patients with NAFLD are progressing in any given year, what portion are regressing, and how can we identify those patients. So liver biopsy, it's an invasive procedure and it's a burden on the patient. We know from previous studies that just due to sampling variability in liver biopsy. You have, if someone is, for example, classified as F3 on the first biopsy and they go back for a second biopsy, there's over a 30% chance they'd be classified as F0 or F1 on the second biopsy just due to sampling variability. So when we model, we kind of actually look at the whole NAFLD population holistically and we keep track of the country. We build these models for countries. So we have the country's whole population. We have background mortality. So we're keeping track 
track of patients who die. And then we also take account of elevated mortality. So we know that people with NAFLD, especially NASH, are going to have excess background mortality due to cardiovascular disease, complications from diabetes, or these other facets of metabolic syndrome. So we keep track of all these things over time and look at how the patients progress. Now, how do we validate the model? You know, we validate the outputs of modeling using end-stage disease. So we look at what data are available for liver cancer. And when we look at this, again, there's uncertainty. There's underreporting around liver cancer. So there's studies from Australia and Sweden that show that, you know, up to 50% of liver cancers may not even be reported to central registries. And then there's uncertainty around how many liver cancer cases are classified as NASH. So we have a large number of cases that are classified as idiopathic or cryptogenic cirrhosis when they're really NAFL or NASH related. So what we do in modeling is we, you know, we end up with a range. What is the plausible range of liver cancer cases that could be attributable to NAFL or NASH? And we validate the model results using that. Now, in terms of drug development, when we look at that, you know, in order for a patient to receive a therapeutic, they have to go through several steps. They have the population at risk has to be screened and the people with NAFL and NASH have to be identified. And we need to identify those who are most likely to progress. And from there, there's a need for further diagnostics and linking people to care at that point. So in order for these therapeutic compounds to be effective in the future, there needs to be a program to screen patients. And we also need better non-invasive diagnostics other than liver biopsy, non-invasive, that will help us identify those patients most likely um, at risk for disease progression. And then diagnostics where the same patient can be tested over time and we can keep track of disease progression. Chris, thanks for that. So let's stay with the part about diagnostics first. And the question becomes, when we say we need better diagnostics, exactly what do we need them to do in the community? And how much of this is about clinical care pathways? And how much of this is about uh, once you've identified a patient at risk doing the right thing uh, or, or what is the right thing to do once you identify a patient at risk? What do you need to know from a modeler perspective? We need to know the other characteristics of the patient. I mean, you know, what is their age? Um, what are the comorbidities? And you know, how are we going to find these patients? So when we look at the U.S. data, in the U.S., there's over about 37 million people with diabetes. But almost one quarter of those, we have over 8 million people in the U.S. who are diabetic and don't even know they're diabetic. They're not even diagnosed. So you know, we know that NAFLD is more closely associated with obesity. Um, so in our model, we actually use obesity as a marker for NAFLD. We assume that NAFLD is going to increase in tandem with obesity. But we look at diabetes as being more associated with NASH. So just looking at something like diabetes, there, there needs to be programs to screen people, not just for diabetes, but for liver disease as well. Those with the most severe forms of metabolic syndrome, we expect to be most at risk of disease progression, but we really need better tools to identify those patients. Jörn Schattenberg. If I may say something, Roger and Chris, thank you for sharing this and congratulations again on all the great modeling work you've been done. Um, my concern is always that, of course, we have to relay on those proxies you use, as you've highlighted, diabetes and obesity to say something about the liver. There's a certain disconnect. And as I also highlighted, not all are diagnosed. I mean, it's the same perspective on the liver end of the manifestation, because a lot of patients with living with diabetes don't know they're cirrhotic. They don't have, they have cirrhotic liver disease. So I, it's always difficult to use these proxies. And I guess the answer is you need more clearer data that links these risk factors um, closer and stronger. And I think we're seeing a lot of innovation in the field of NITs, as you've highlighted, we're in the need. Alina has done a lot of work on, on MR imaging and also ultrasound-based technologies, which are a little bit more available in Europe. We need to enter those into the big databases that you are using to then model the outcomes. That's very important. The other thing is I'm always puzzled if I look at obesity rates. I'm, I'm not too certain 
uncertain there, well, captured in all databases that I'm looking at either. So maybe a thought from your side there, how robust you're using obesity as a proxy, but how robust is obesity then uh, coded? And uh, yeah, that's for a start. But I have many thoughts on that. Uh, and I think we'll see better in the future because we're just gaining additional information on, on NITs. Jorn brings up a good point about the, when we look at obesity, when we look at overweight too, in the US, um, we use cutoff values, a BMI body mass index of 25 as a cutoff for overweight and 30 for obesity. These numbers were chosen arbitrarily to even five cutoff. And we think that these numbers will vary between countries just to ethnic genetic differences. So a BMI of 25 in Japan may not mean the same thing as a BMI in, for example, a South Pacific country. When we have looked at cutoff levels, we've actually varied it by country. So in China and Japan, we'll actually use a lower BMI cutoff. And when we look at the data, especially from, say, China and Japan, a much larger portion of the NAFLD population would be classified as lean NAFLD. So they're not overweight, they're not obese, but they have NAFLD. You know, it becomes arbitrary when we try to create these um, classifications. So one of the reasons we did use obesity or the obesity to overweight is because the data have been collected so long. So Lancet has, in their global burden of disease, has estimates going back to 1975. Whereas if we look at diabetes, the challenge with diabetes is the portion that's diagnosed and undiagnosed changes over time, and that varies between different countries. So we do need better markers. And you know a lot of the studies of disease progression have been very reliant on liver biopsy. But we know that the patients that undergo liver biopsy probably probably aren't representative of the entire NAFLD NASH population. Just, you know, it's an invasive procedure. And, you know, it just for a person to get to the point where they're having a liver biopsy probably means that they're not fully representative of the full, the entire population. Alina Allen. Yeah, these are great points that highlight how much is a gap in what we know in NAFLD. And I think these will be important once we have a drug, once there's something on the market, how do I identify these people, how we stratify them. But if we move back to the current realm of clinical trials and drug development where we do have all these parameters. We don't necessarily have to make assumptions or have difficulty diagnosing obesity or stratifying by diabetes status. There we have, by all means, everything we need from non-invasive tests to clinical parameters to biopsies. Chris, where do you see that there's improvement or how how can we improve this arena with uh, the kind of modeling that you do to improve maybe the very high placebo response rates or maybe minimize the time that we have to wait for these clinical outcomes to occur or histologic outcomes that are currently used. Where do you see in this realm room for improvement with the modeling type that you do? We have these meta-analyses that look at disease progression. And I don't. a lot of people have seen, I think it was the Singh 2015 article that they did a meta-analysis of disease progression. But for certain stages, when they combined all the studies together, you actually had negative, you had disease regression. And this was all just due to the, um, mostly due to sampling variability and liver biopsy. So it's these longitudinal studies where you go back to the same person again and again and again, and you perform the same measures and you see the changes over time. And you get more reliable longitudinal measures. You know, a person at this age with this number of comorbidities is what is their chances in the next five or 10 years of progressing from F1 to F2 or F3 or becoming cirrhotic? So it's really the long-term follow-up and, and really getting that, refining those longitudinal data. So what we currently lack is those estimates from, from this type of data, uh, because I agree with, I was actually part of that meta-analysis and I think most of the time frames were one year apart and not a lot happens in one year in between 
that and variability in biopsy reads, you cannot get good estimates. So I think the focus is what you're saying. The focus should be in, in waiting more time to actually see what happens and ideally maybe pair not just biopsy data, but with other non-invasive tests and then correlating with clinical outcomes. Yeah. Also tying this into the other facets of metabolic syndrome is understanding what portion of the patients that are F3 are also, you know, have serious cardiovascular disease and other, other comorbidities and how that's going to, you know, impact disease burden going forward. So when we look at the end stages of, you know, NAFLD and NASH, we see a large competing mortality effect where they, these other facets of metabolic syndrome are contributing a lot to excess mortality as well. And hopefully, you know, a therapeutic compound wouldn't just reduce disease burden with NASH, but also help alleviate some of the other burdens of metabolic syndrome. And now back to Roger. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page in which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview May's second annual Innovations in NAFLD Care Conference with co-hosts Jorn Schottenberg, who's a regular here, as you know, and Jeff Lazarus, who's not. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.